Good welcome to you all from Jim Baker and Rob Nyer. You're listening to The Pod Against America, our take on the plot against America, the six-part HBO serialization of the Philip Roth novel of the same name. This is our eighth and final episode, a recap of the series entire. Here's Rob Nyer. Hello, Jim. Hey, Rob. How are you this week? Same as every week. You know, no, no sooner am I finishing, uh, I think I already said this, I'm finishing the dishes from third breakfast and I have to start <laughs> pre-lunch. So it's all about food. Yes, it is all about food and the dishwasher once a day, basically, which is uh, I never thought would happen. So we're back. People might be wondering. My wife, for example, was wondering, wait a second, isn't that series over? We can't let go. No, we can't let go. We still have things to say, important things to say. Yeah. The, and the, we have the nothing world, else going on in our lives. I mean, that's... Every single word that you and I utter over the next 55 to 53 to 59 minutes, the world desperately needs. And I tried to explain that to her. I'm not sure how well it went over. I'll, I'll check in with her later. <laughs> but she told me I... she is enjoying the podcast, which actually shocked me. As I mentioned, I think last week, she has not been listening, and I assumed that she never would, but now she's in, um, an episode and a half in, so I'm uh, going to have to clean this one up a little bit. No more sailor jokes? Correct. Okay. Uh, let so me, we, uh, we gave I each other tear, some... I've got to tear uh, up my notes here. Because <laughs> they're all... It's just filth. <laughs> too loud, man. Too loud. <laughs> I can fix that in post. Well, you we told gave me to buy the deluxe some... microphone, and I did. And, yeah, uh, I know. It picks know. up everything. Pin drop. See, I just heard it. Um, we gave each other some study materials for this week, so we'd have something to talk about for 53 to 59 minutes. Uh, was there anything, uh, any of those things jump out at you in terms of, gosh, Rob and I have to talk about this no matter what else happens? Well, I'd like to talk about how mean Terry Gross was to – or Zoe Kazan. <laughs> yes. I've been listening to Terry Gross for a long time and man, she jumped her. It it was it was an a, for me it was a strange thing to listen to. Um and uh I just want to mention I'll let you go into a little bit of detail on how that conversation went, but it was bizarre because I had exactly the same listening experience. I remember where I was. It was so jarring. Um I was had just crossed the Burnside Bridge into East Portland when I heard Terry grilling Greta Gerwig about her, her her one-time affection for the work of Woody Allen. And she just would not let it go. To the point where Greta Gerwig actually began to... I, I, I guess I shouldn't say she was crying. She was certainly on the verge of crying. I'm thinking, Terry... Why are you torturing this poor person? What Do you think they were in the same room? No, I'm I'm almost if they were in this, Okay, so if they were in the same room, you think Greta Gerwig would have dropped her? Think she would have <laughs> think she would have cold cocked her? And you know it's funny because it they're, they're only tangentially related, but it occurred to me that uh these are she's grilling both of these people um essentially about projects that are were initiated or overseen by by famous Jewish writers essentially or in directors and Kazan I get no Kazan was a screenwriter um, and uh, they're both women relatively young women compared to Terry and there was some morality involved here um, and it probably is just a coincidence but it, it is awfully coincidental that the only two times I've ever heard Terry really get after someone who seemed otherwise quite friendly and reasonable were these two these two these two situations i know uh and, and so it talk, was, talk about because talk about the zoe kazan interview a little bit so people know what we're so zoe about. kazan's grandfather was Elia kazan who when called before the house on american activities committee named names and for this he was vilified in hollywood for many years in fact I remember that very awkward situation on the Oscars a number of years ago when Chris Rock came out and said, on the night they were honoring Kazan, and said, nobody likes rats. 
<laughs> and uh, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. It was a, it was a very, very awkward moment. And I still think about it whenever I think of awkward things. So obviously Zoe Kazan had nothing to do with this. Uh, just as most people had nothing to do with what their grandfathers did 40 years before they were born. And Terry Gross just, just went for it, uh, trying to tie it into the, the persecution the Jews felt in, in, in the show, in, in the plot against America. And Zoe Kazan just wasn't having anything, any of it. She just well, first, said, though, she said, yeah, I'll talk about it. Yeah. Right. I think I think I think Terry said something like maybe this is not something that, that, that's comfortable for you to talk about. But I'm hope because I think Zoe Kazan generally does not discuss it. But you're right. Terry said, you know, she would try to tie it into the show, which I think was fair. And Zoe Kazan said, sure, I can talk about it. And she did. And then Terry kept pushing for more and more. And it was to me, it was clear immediately that you get one shot at this. Right. If you're going to impose in this way, take your shot, accept what you're given. And I understand that a great interviewer sometimes has to push past things. But to me, this wasn't the sort of thing that you push past. Am I, am I wrong? Well, especially, especially with an entertainer. Yes. As opposed to a politician. A politician, you want, to, you want them to get to the truth. You want them to not avoid questions, which most of them are quite excellent at. It's spectacular right. to watch them do it. <laughs> uh, I could never do that. Uh, but with an entertainer, you know, we're not we're not inventing the wheel here. You know, the, the fate of the nation does not rest on her feelings about her grandfather. Right. Well, and in fairness to Terry, maybe this is in fairness. I'm not sure, but Zoe Kazan does not seem. And yes, I'm going to rave about her again. Like you're your your typical entertainer she's a, she writes i think she might have directed um she's just clearly a phenomenal talent and she also spoke directly about her uh her experiences with depression and an eating disorder so it isn't as if she is shying away from difficult s subjects it just seemed like terry pushed on this particular subject more than she normally would and and to no end really it didn't result in anything interesting. And what was really frustrating for me was, and this, w this was the strangest thing about the interview to me, and uh, it wasn't even the standard 45 to 50 minute fresh air interview. It wound up being, I think, maybe 40 minutes. And then they had another segment on something else, whether it was a music review or something afterward. And it, to me, Zoe Kazan is a fascinating enough person that she, there should have been a good 50 minutes and that's with just two minutes about her grandfather. So it was a, and I don't say this very often at all. I, I, I adore Terry Gross. I think she's, I can't imagine, it's hard for me to imagine life without her because she, she's such a great interviewer and she has such fantastic guests. But I thought this was a missed opportunity. Right. And they also spent a lot of time talking about the current situation. Right staying home and you know how, how they're coping with that which right you know we're all talking about it but i don't know if i needed to hear that <laughs> right i i think that you're right i mean i, I they're probably there's probably a, a significant percentage of fresh air fans who who enjoy that how are people getting along what are the stars doing right um right you're, i think a little a little of that goes a long way especially because we, we all have basically the same story <laughs> even the stars are they cleaning their own toilets I, I, who's, who's cutting their hairs i don't know. I, I hate to think of those poor people cleaning their own toilets <laughs> that's I a just... really good question <laughs> i'm gonna guess that if you're a movie star and i don't zoe kazan is staying with her parents as i understand it so right uh, but i'm guessing that if you're let's just say brad pitt because i saw him on tv this weekend um i'm guessing that brad pitt simply pays whatever it costs to get the best housekeeping, right? Yeah, I mean, you just go, I guess what happens is you go into the opposite wing of the house. Right. While the cleaning people are cleaning the other wing. Right. Or you have live-in cleaning people and you don't let them leave. There's that too. No matter how much they cry about wanting to see their families, <laughs> they just can't. <laughs> it, it's gotta be understood. <laughs> so, um, 
Did you listen to the Q podcast that I sent you with the David Simon interview? The Canadian. It's, it's okay. Yes. Yes. Um, I just wanted to I wanted to bring it to your attention because I thought that I'm not sure, and I wish I'd listened to it, been taking notes. For me, the I think it was 18 to 22 minutes might have been more illuminating about how David Simon feels about the story than all of the HBO official show podcasts were put together. Now, those were great if you wanted to know how the show was made and the choices that were made. But I just he was just so incredibly eloquent about why he wanted to make this show and what it meant to him and uh, you know personally re- relating to his family. I just thought that if, if, you, if anyone hasn't been listening to the official podcast and wants to get just a, a, a 20 minute sense why this show was made, I think the Q interview is probably the best source. I agree. David Simon is so eloquent that it, it makes me embarrassed that yes. I'm not. Right. That the way he describes his passion and how he goes about things, um, it just makes me feel like I'm still in third grade <laughs> by comparison. <laughs> he's yes, a graduate he's, student he and I'm in third people. grade. Yeah. Yep. Who makes you, makes us feel stupid and, uh, and, and inadequate. Um, but it's, we, you know, it's, 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 we still need those people. I'd rather have them than not have them, even though they make me feel like an idiot. Oh, of course. Yeah, I don't mind somebody's being the got, stupidest person in the room. Somebody's got to make our entertainment. Yeah. Go to it, nerd. Uh, let's um, we'll get into some deeper, weirder stuff. I think, but let's uh, let's talk about the Lindbergh's podcast. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I, I I don't know why, but I I have this sort of weird fascination with 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 this subject. Um, I don't know. It might be that you and I are the only two people who have listened to this. I have no idea how many <laughs> listeners they have. I found it. I was doing a search, <clears throat> oddly enough. Um, I don't remember if I was doing a search for what I was searching for. I went to my podcast, my Apple podcast, and just searched for it might have been The Plot Against America. It might have been The Lindberghs. I don't know what I was looking for. But I ran across this podcast called The Lindberghs. And the, the first episode, the, the, the one on top, was uh, the most their most recent episode when I when I made this search was I believe it was episode forty, and they they had it, I should say the Lindberghs are one of Lindbergh's grandsons whose first name I've forgotten and his wife I believe um, I think it's certain, Eric certain, Eric yes Eric Lindbergh and his wife or his partner um, and um, this was th- that episode this episode was published. About two weeks, maybe, before the plot against America appeared. So they hadn't seen it. But I just want to, this is how the podcast began. Uh, uh, Eric's wife, again, I'm guessing, said, Welcome to the Lindberghs. Eric and I have been handed a great big pile of poop. And then Eric said, I call it shit because it stinks. Uh, so that, those are not the, the, if you're looking for a rational sort of semi-objective or at least introspective, insightful take on a subject, not the first word you want to hear when you fire up the, the podcast. Uh, but that's what I got. I kept listening, listened to the whole episode. I will say, you know, a few seconds later, one of them said, hey, wait a minute, we need to use this for growth. Um, Eric apparently did read the book, um, and had good things to say about Roth uh, and and his talents. So it, it got better, but it was just a strange thing to listen to since they hadn't actually seen the show. It was essentially all about how this might affect us someday and um, how upset we were to hear about it, but we're going to try to be adults about this. And, and here's the, another weird thing. They said they were going to watch the show, talk about it frequently, and have watch parties. Um, well, let's skip ahead about two months. Episode 46. No watch parties. They haven't mentioned it in the previous five episodes. Um, and it's still not clear that they've... Actually, they haven't watched it because they say 
we also have this HBO miniseries coming up. So they spent an entire episode uh, at answering the question, was, uh, well, she says, was your grandfather Charles an anti-Semite? Was he a hater? And that's, that's, the, that's the subject for episode 46, and it, it goes on from there. I think you listened to some of that, and I was wondering what your reaction was. Well, there's, yeah, she does, she does refer to, to haters. Yes, quite a bit. And, you know, I, I think we, we think of the Klansman in his robe screaming on a, on the ste- steps of a county seat as a hater. I mean, those people hate Jews. Right. What Lindbergh's and, and uh, Henry Ford hated Jews. I don't think Lindbergh hated Jews, so I, I agree with him that that he was not a hater, but he certainly misunderstood them, and he start, certainly thought that they were that their attitudes toward the war, going to war, were a problem, and he saw them as a monolith in that regard that needed to be countered with uh, with a movement. So, does that make him an anti-Semite? I mean, when he, when he did his "Let's stay out of the war" speeches, he said there he would always say there are three groups that want us to go to war. One is the British, one are the Jews, and the other is the Roosevelt administration. So, if he had just stuck to the message that I don't want to go to war, I don't want American boys to die for European stupidity. Which, in 1939, 1940, was a legitimate position to take. This is not our fight. Those idiots are at it again. You know, the Cats and Jammer kids are over there beating each other up again. Why should we die again? To I mean, you can, you can understand that argument. I mean, he, he, he drew 3,000 people at Yale to a speech. Uh, many of them Yale students. You know, the best and the brightest in the country at the time, right? But he always included those his references to those three groups. So I don't think it was necessary for his case, but the fact that he felt he needed to do it to single out the Jews as the other. Yes. Uh, you know, it is well, that, 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 is that, that textbook anti-Semitism? I, I guess it is. I mean, it, there, it, it, you always, it always comes down to what your definitions are of racism and, and anti-Semitism and all, all those things. Uh, is it, is it, racist to simply argue that that someone else is different rather than inferior i think that that's an argument that we could have forever and and nobody knows really what the right answer is but the fact that he said um in a speech we cannot allow the natural passions and prejudices of other peoples to lead our country to destruction well he's clearly including jews among those other peoples right right um you could argue that that's not racism, and maybe he would have. He probably would have. Um, he was a eugenicist. We know that. Is that not racism? I think it, most eugenicists were certainly racist. Now, they might not have been anti-Semitic necessarily, but you can't be a eugenicist without being racist because the whole point of eugenics is that we can somehow identify which which people have good blood and which ones don't, and let's let's make sure the rich, the people with the good blood breed, and the others don't, or at least they don't get infect our our good blood. Um, and I, I don't think there's much question that 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 uh, you know it's funny when when one of the defenses that they use in the podcast that that Eric used in the podcast is he references A. Scott Berg's biography of Lindbergh, which won one of the big awards. I can't remember if that was the National Book Award winner or the the Pulitzer winner, but one of those. Um, and so your reference is Berg, and I was thinking, gosh, you know, I, I'm kind of at a loss here because I didn't read Berg's book about Lindbergh. But there's a quote, <coughs> uh, Philip Roth at the, in the, the back of his book, as we've discussed, has a good 15, 20 pages of, of historical material, right? And the last thing in that material is a quote from Berg's book. <laughs> and he he wrote at one point um uh well he wrote lots of things that were are damning but one of them is that um 
that uh, aviation is a tool specially shaped for Western hands, a scientific art which others only copy in a mediocre fashion, another barrier between the teeming millions of Asia and the Grecian inheritance of Europe, one of those priceless possessions which permit the white race to live at all in a pressing sea of yellow, black, and brown. Is that? Is there not some hatred in that? In that? In that? In that statement? I, I, I don't know how you how you read that and argue convincingly that 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 Lindbergh was not a hater to use that that word, which I don't really like. Right. I. You know, I, I kind of took the Eric and Lynn Lindbergh podcast with a grain of salt because I don't know how objective I would be if my grandfather had, you know, I don't know, swum the English Channel with, with one leg tied behind his back and became famous and then, you know, <laughs> said some untoward things. I would probably try to defend him as much as I could. Um, you know, I, I have one semi, you know, it's a very distant relative, my maternal grandmother's first cousin was a World War I flying ace in the Royal Air Force and became uh, an air marshal in the RAF. And I believe he succeeded Bomber Harris uh, as the head of Bomber Command. His name is Norman Bottomley. And when I read a book about any kind of English aviation, I always hold my breath that, you know, there's going to be something bad about him in there. And instead, there's usually nothing about him. I don't think he didn't really, he didn't really have a, he wasn't at the forefront of things. But I, I think one time I did find a, a, an example in a book where he, he argued with Harris about carpet bombing cities, targeting civilians. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't think that was a great idea. So I was, I was proud of that because I always thought that was a foolish thing that the RAF did. But let's say I had found something horrible about him. I, I probably would have. You know, even though this is a distant relative that I've, you know, that was dead. I guess he died when I was a kid. You know, never, never met him. My parents never met him. Uh, you know, I don't know that he, my grandmother even met him other than at a picnic in, you know, in England in 1894 or something. But I, I feel that connection to him and I don't want to read anything bad about him. So imagine if it was your direct blood and he was really famous. I mean, would, would you jump to their defense like Eric Lindbergh did? I probably would. Um, I, I deny reality, I think. Right. No, and, 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 and Eric is denying reality. It's funny because he says you really can't understand it unless you read the, what the historians have written. Well, I'm pretty sure the historians are not on Eric Lindbergh's side on this one, right? Right. Um, certainly A. Scott Berg, who I just, who I just quoted, whose book I just quoted. Um, I don't think he would suggest that Lindbergh was, was uh, uh, you know, wanted to give a fair deal to all race, creeds, and colors. Um, uh, so, no, but you're right. We would expect that. The, the only reason I bring it up, well, I brought it up because I find it amusing because I think human foibles are amusing and, and, and biases. But I do think that it's worth addressing Lindbergh is one of the great American heroes to this day. I'm sure his name adorns all sorts of monuments and, and buildings and various other things. He is to this day one of the great American heroes. And I think it it is worth exploring whether he was given a fair shake by David Simon. And, you know, you could argue, well, it's just fiction. It doesn't matter. No, I, I, th I don't. I think it does matter. I think that when you take his important historical figures you owe them a fair shot i really believe that that's one of the reasons i hated that movie um uh what was the one about the english code breaking um the uh, oh uh <laughs> johnny and the amazing <laughs> code breaking thingamajig well it was it was about alan turing yes and with, and with benedict Cumberpatch. i can remember i yes. can remember everything but the title and he's great in it, and Turing was a fascinating character, a brilliant man. They got a lot of the code-breaking stuff, the technical stuff, utterly wrong, which is fine. I don't mind that, but the villain in the movie was one of Turing's superiors in the code-breaking operation. He's the villain, not the Nazis, Turing's boss. And, you know, this is a real person. They didn't change his name. This is a real figure, 
and he was that's not anything like the person that he was in in real life you know i have the same issue with the moneyball movie which i enjoy a great deal it's one of my three or four favorite baseball movies probably but i can't cannot countenance how uh, art Howe was portrayed i can't um, either it, it, that was I ridiculous. Find it disgusting and uh, why why should art Howe have to live with that you know granted i believe he gave them the rights to his name i don't know why he did that um but if he's okay with it i'm okay with it for the most part but that is going to be how people think of art Howe for as long as people are thinking about art Howe. it's going to be the movie version um, and I think it's unconscionable. One thing about the, the touring movie, and I know the name will come to me two hours from now, or I could look it up right now. Is it the something game? The crying game. <laughs> you know they cried working on that stuff. That's a lot of pressure coming, code breaking. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, you know, Hollywood seems to think there has to be an enemy. Yes. So... You know, Moneyball, they target Art Howe as the enemy. And every movie gets an enemy in it. Uh, I I was happy with the, with the touring movie because the English did it. Like this time, it wasn't Hollywood. It was a, <laughs> it was a British production that did that. And I mean, it was 90% bunkum. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, we used to look to the Brits for, for accuracy. And <laughs> what happened? You know, they get on us for... for they got on us for U five seventy one, saying that we, you know, we stole the the well, Enigma machine from a submarine. It, go, it goes way back further than that. I mean, way back into the I, did, I believe it was the fifties. The 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 British would take great umbrage when Hollywood took great liberties with World War Two movies, probably because a great number of of the top British actors in that era had actually fought in the war. They had unlike American actors. There were obviously a few some American actors who saw combat but not nearly to the degree that, that British actors did. And also, of course, the British were bombed. So they took the accuracy of, uh, a bit more seriously, generally speaking, than... Uh, was it, didn't I just read the other day? You sent me something about um, Desert Rats, right? The British hated that, that show. It, it, cultural, the, the, it was basically cultural, cultural appropriation. Rat Patrol. Yeah, Rat Patrol. What did I say? You said Desert Rats, which was the yes, the real guys. The movie with uh, Richard, with um, James Mason is Rommel. Yeah, yes. So the movie was called The Imitation Game. Ah, yes, there it is. That was six years ago. Gosh, getting old sucks, man. <laughs> Living sucks. But I wish I hadn't seen it. The movie sucks more than getting old. But we had to see it because it was nominated for Best Picture. Yep. Yeah, Rob and I have this thing where we have to see all the Best Picture nominees. It's, it's often a curse. Still have not seen Little Women, by the way. Well, it's because you're, you're sexist. I know. I, know you're, I knew you were going to say something like that. If only Zoe Kazan had been in it, or Terry Gross, I would have gone to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back to the Lindberghs. The actual podcast. You're right. I completely agree. I just wanted to, um, I wanted to acknowledge that someone is making a case in favor of Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, and I wanted to knock it down a little bit. I do think it's complicated. That is one thing that Eric, I believe, says in the podcast. Eric Lindbergh. It's complicated. He's right. It's complicated. More complicated than 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 we than we're led to believe in a TV series, which is not atypical but he said and wrote enough things in, in in which he established jews in america as the other and said and wrote enough things about people of all in all sorts of other parts of the world that it, it's hard to to suggest that he 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 had uh, he was filled with 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 peace and goodwill for all mankind right now he, at no point did he say we need to round these people up no and you know it wasn't like the pages of Mein Kampf springing out of a, the voice of a, the American aviator. Right. He just identified them as this force that wanted to get our boys killed in a foreign entanglement. Well, and, yes, and you mean in real life? In real life, and it, it goes. Yeah. A bit, and he goes a bit farther than that in the show, right? Because right. In the show, once programs. he gets in power, yes, 
then they take some things that he did say and kind of extrapolate them. And I'd like to say that what Philip Roth did, his, his what if, his inflection point, that someone else ran for president is so much more workable than a lot of the what if inflection points in some of these other shows that we've, mm-hmm. we've discussed in past podcasts like Man in the High Castle and right. Fatherland and SSGB. Yep. Because they all require a great leap from reality in some sort of military fashion or right. political fashion. And I don't know, it's it's much more believable that, oh yeah, uh, Wilkie got aced out by Charles Lindbergh, who was at one time considered to be a candidate. So it's not even a stretch to say that he would have been a candidate. And right. things changed. There was a groundswell and well, he beat FDR. I want to talk about the FDR a little bit and what if scenarios, but I just want to finish with the Lindberghs. Sorry, I'm not quite done with them Um, because they did say in episode 46, I'm quoting here. um, uh, Let's see. Where does it say that? There's some place where they say we're going to watch every episode. Okay. And we're going to talk about it a lot. They've published two episodes since then. No mention of the show in either episode. So, uh, I guess I was giving them. I was going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're going to come up with some really insightful things after they've actually seen the show, since they've spent two episodes talking about something they haven't seen, and it didn't happen. So I'm going to. I'm still subscribing to the Lindberghs. I will continue subscribing for another episode or two in the, the hopes that um, that they grapple, and uh, and I'll let you know. I'll keep you posted. Okay. Not the world, just you. <laughs> now, what ifs? What if there's a great in in the book you sent me? What if there's a little bit? There's a chapter about about Roosevelt, who, as the chapter says, had I think like goes through what is it six or eight strokes of luck, um, uh, that allowed him to become president essentially, uh, or or at least be president during World War II. I can't remember the specifics, and there's a little. You and I have talked about the, the great man theory of, of history. Essentially, the idea that, that the great events in history, or at least the, the, the great movements in history, are, are due to individual figures, whether it's Genghis Khan or Hitler or Stalin or Napo- Napoleon, whomever, George Washington. Um, there's another sort of mind, there's another way of thinking that all of these things, most of these things would, that we've seen would essentially have happened regardless because that's where the people were headed right there was a movement and we shouldn't give credit to the person who who wound up being the titular leader we should give credit to the movement which would have happened regardless of who was on top but there was this quote that and i've always sort of bought into that the second of those the idea that great men don't determine history but there's this quote that i liked um arthur schlesinger jr great historian wrote those who believe that personalities make no difference to history might do well to ponder whether the world would have been the same in the next two decades, that means in the 1940s, I think, and 50s, if a car had killed Winston Churchill or an assassin's bullet, Franklin D. Roosevelt, because Churchill almost died uh, when he was hit by a cab in New York in the early 1930s. Churchill, w- or Roosevelt, was very nearly assassinated and I don't remember what year it was, 32, 33? It was um, three weeks before he was to be inaugurated. Right. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Getting back to your point, it's not at all difficult to imagine someone else being president or being elected president in 1940 because it almost happened in a much different way, but it almost happened. Right, which is why I'm tipping my hat to Roth for coming up with that what if. Mm-hmm. It, it's so much more believable than oh, uh, what was the, the the guy's name who was the head of the German American boon Fritz Fritz Kuhn, right? You know Fritz Kuhn seizing power. <laughs> you know the same book, only it's instead of Lindbergh getting elected, Fritz Kuhn and the German American boon overthrow the American government. Right. You know that's that's ridiculous. Right. Um, and you know, the, and and the truth is that. 
The Republicans did reach out to Lindbergh in, I believe, 1939 or, or early 1940 to, to see if he was interested in running for president. He wasn't. But it's not, what if he'd had a change of heart? What if his personality had been just slightly different to the point where he thought, hey, that's not a bad idea. I could do that job. People love me. <laughs> that's... <laughs> That's the thing, you know, whenever like a football coach is really popular in the state, they go, he ought to run for governor. Everyone loves him. <laughs> well, you know, they love him until the day he names his party. And then half of them don't love him anymore. So, so reading, by the way, reading the back matter of the, the, the book, The Plot Against America, reminded me again that Lindbergh, who had been persona non grata in Washington in 1940 because of his opposition to Roosevelt and the war, uh, shortly into the war was allowed back in to the the military essentially and did a bunch of of what apparently was important work in the airplane design and also um teaching uh, coming up with ways to extend fuel uh mileage yeah the pilots were running their engines too rich right and he figured it out and he figured out how they did they could go a lot further which is which was really big in the pacific because oh yeah people got lost all the time Here's the thing that blows me away, I, 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 and I, I'd love to read. I've read an article about this, but it didn't explain it. He was sent to the Pacific to work with pilots on various things, and he wound up flying combat missions, and by according to the report, shooting down a Japanese airplane. Now, in combat. Now, here's what I don't understand. I just can't. I'll, I'll, I can't understand why he was allowed to fly combat missions for the simple reason that. Somebody would have had a hell of a lot of explaining to do if he'd been shot down and killed. Which, of course, there was a even by I think it, I think he, he was flying combat missions in either nineteen late forty four or early forty five when things had turned around. But there were still lots of pilots getting shot down in the Pacific. It wasn't as if something terrible couldn't have happened to him. And I, I, it made me wonder if he had been shot down, if they would have tried to cover it up and say, "Oh, he was just on a routine training mission, and this happened." They might have because they certainly didn't make any propaganda hay from the fact that he shot down a Japanese plane. You would think, you know, right? Lindy Blast well, Jap kind of would be a big headline, and they didn't. They didn't take advantage of that. What kind of hay would the Japanese have made if they'd shot him down? They probably wouldn't have known unless he crashed in in the harbor at Rabul and they you fished out his body or something. So, well, the, the the Americans would have had to report his death, but they would have they could have made up a whole different story, right? Oh, that sure. Would have been the, right. Yeah, they wouldn't. They couldn't have known. I'm, I suspect that the combat was not over Japanese territory. Or maybe it was. I don't know. I, I the article, the story I read was in an aviation magazine two or three years ago. I don't remember the specifics, but uh, uh, I think he's. There's actually even some stories that he shot down more than one plane. But the, I know he was credited by his his fellow flyers with shooting with with one combat. Uh, and look, a lot of really good pilots didn't shoot anybody down. It really is pretty amazing that this guy who wasn't trained as a combat pilot was able to do that he must have been one hell of a flyer i mean uh, and it's obviously a very brilliant person in, in many ways but um i don't know he, he's interesting i i would it, like to read the berg book i mean the interesting people are the ones that sort of flip-flop back and forth between when you read about them you admire them and then you loathe them yes uh the biggest case of that I've ever seen in my life is uh, when I read American Caesar, the the book about Douglas MacArthur. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he was a, he was a great governor of post war Japan, great, you know, like the the guy you wanted there in peacetime to to help the transition. But there are all these other things he did badly. You know, he's just terrible at and and did right. really stupid things. It's just page after page, you're you're on his side, and then it'll flip flop. It's hard to sum up anyone at that level with one sentence. And right. that goes for Charles Lindbergh as well. So what do you think about this show? Where does it fit in the pantheon of great television of the last 10, 15 years? Well, because it's a six-episode run, it I don't know that you put it in with The Sopranos and The Wire and mm-hmm. uh, Breaking Bad. It didn't have to worry about its own survival. Right. Right. That's a good point. I mean, maybe there should be a separate category for for limited 
series like this and something that runs for three or four or five or six seasons. I, I, I just it just sort of blows my mind. I, I might have mentioned to you that my inspiration for, for, for our podcast is is one called The Watch, which is in the Ringer Network and just two guys who get together every week and talk about really good television. Uh, and I don't believe they've even mentioned the plot against America. And I, it's not an, and I'm glad they didn't because I, I was hoping they wouldn't. Otherwise I wouldn't feel like there was a great, you know, I, I would feel less inclined for, to do this with you, even though it's been a blast. I feel like it would matter less if somebody else who was also, well, I'm, I was going to say also smart, but that's a stupid thing to say because it implies that I'm as smart as those guys are, which I wouldn't argue. But, but um, I, I'm just glad that we're the only ones doing it. Um, but just to give you an idea of what they do talk about, they talk a lot about Better Call Saul and a little Westworld and a show called Devs and something they love called Zero Zero Zero, which I have not seen but want to. Um, Oz- little Ozark, a lot of Better Call Saul, which is fantastic. Um, uh, there's just there are so many good shows that it would be hard for me without making a list of them all to say this is even one of my 10 favorite shows of the last 10 years because there are so many good ones. Um, you know, we're obviously this is the golden age of television. We're very lucky to have so many great shows to watch. I just here's an, another show that they haven't even mentioned is Bosch, which I just finished watching the latest season of last night. And it's it's not a great show. I think it's great at what it does, and I really like police procedurals. So it gets major bonus points f- from me for being good at, at that thing. Um, well, I like the fact that Plot Against America succeeded at what it set out to do, which was bring the book to life, make it relevant, and it did that. It did it almost perfectly, I think. Right. And he only had to make a few little adjustments. A few adjustments. Hyper-relevant. And even had the blessing of the author to make some of those adjustments. Yes. So. Yes. It's a success. You know, I, I watched the documentary about uh, the movie Galaxy Quest last night. Which and I when Galaxy, watching because of you. Yeah, and when Galaxy Quest came out, I said, that's a perfect movie. <laughs> that's a movie that, that nails everything it set out to do. It stays within itself. It's perfect. And the, the Galaxy Quest documentary opens with a quote from David Mamet. And he said, there are only four perfect movies ever made. <laughs> the three are great ones. I can't remember what the other three are, but and but the fourth one was Galaxy Quest. Right. So I said to my kids, "That's the level your old man operates at." <laughs> I'm at David Mamet's level with assessments. <laughs> so in that regard, uh, uh, you know, Plot Against America is perfect. It sets out. It achieves what it set out to do. Right. Now, does it exceed the mandate? And, and move into the, the realm of greatness. I don't think that's what it was trying to do. I don't think that's, it's not transcendent the way some of those other shows we just talked about are. Right. But it didn't have to be. Right. No, I, I think that's, I think that's basically, that's basically right. Um, he took tremendous source material and created something mm-hmm. else tremendous, which you're right. That That's the goal. Uh, I will say that that the reason it was tremendous wasn't necessarily because of Simon's and his partner's writing. Much of that was lifted straight from the book. Um, He did have to, he made tremendous choices when it came to what to include and what to leave out, um, which is probably, I don't want to say it's the hardest part, but there are three or four things that stand in your way if you're trying to do something like this. And that is certainly the, 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 what you have to start with, right? You have to start with the script. And um, he had to go through probably with a, the book with a highlighter or something. Yes, no, yes, no, all the way through. And that's hard work, I would assume, never having tried to adapt a, what is it? Uh, looks like a 360-page novel, basically. But uh, he did a fantastic job with that but the performances that he got from the actors that he chose i think that if there's anything transcendent about the show it's that it was an, it, if i were learning to be an actor i would i would study that show much more so than 
nearly anything else on TV. Would you agree with that? Uh, I agree that it was excellent. I, I don't know if I could go as far as to say much more than anything on TV, but I can't think of any role that was miscast. No, I shouldn't say more than anything. I should, what I yeah. should say is more than almost anything else. Okay. There are other series that I enjoy. Again, you know, we, you and we, I just watched, I just binge watched Man in the High Castle a couple few months ago. Really enjoyed it. It's not an acting class, even though the acting's fine. You know what I mean? Yes. Everybody's fine. Uh, you're not going to be handing out Emmys. Sorry to say, um, and that's true of most of, of the of the most of the shows we watch. Even the the best of them don't have those sorts of performances. And I think I think that 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 the plot against America has at least two award worthy performances. Absolutely. So let's talk about, uh, we talked about the podcasts. We talked yep. about the, some of the material in the back of the novel. Yep. Where Roth uh, lays out the jumping off point from reality. Yes. And he talks about, he has little biographies of all the, the people who appear in the book. Yes. And um, the thing we always love to talk about is the, the military what ifs. Yes. So what if, what if Roosevelt is not reelected in 1940 mm -hmm. and that means there's no lend lease in 1941 we have a draft the draft has been mm -hmm. instituted in 1940 right. yep. does Lindbergh cut off the draft would, would he be that laissez you know that laissez-faire about the, the rest of the world that he would say now we don't need a draft let's cut let's cut all these guys loose let's right. go back to the 18,000 man <laughs> army or whatever it was some ridiculously right. low number well i think that it's interesting the the question of japanese aggression is never mentioned in certainly in the sh in the tv show i don't recall if it's mentioned in the book but you could certainly make a pretty good case if you believed that the philippines and hawaii were worth defending you can make a pretty good case in 1941 that we need to have a pretty decent sized army and certainly Navy and Air Force. Well, in the book, Lindbergh signs a non-aggression pact with the Japanese. Mm -hmm. I've forgotten about that. I don't think it's mentioned on the show. But as, as we you know, as we saw with Hitler with his non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, those those things go away. Right. So there there was a, a, there was an assumption had been an assumption for years and years in the military in the 1930s that there would be war between the Japanese and the Americans because of the their competing interests in the in the in the in the uh, Western Pacific, right? I mean, I don't think a non-aggression aggression pact just makes that 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 go away. Right. And they there was a, a big movement to modernize the navy in 1934. So that was underway, and right. they were certainly working on airplanes before 1940 for the next wave. Right. So, no lend-lease to England, no lend-lease to the Soviet Union when, when Germany invades the Soviet Union in June of 1941. Right. No 8th Air Force going over to Europe to bomb German manufacturing. So what does that do to the war? I think that I think that the the Lindley's issue is the is the, the 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 primary issue because, and I don't know enough about. Look, I've read plenty of books, but I'm not a I'm not a an expert. Uh, would the, the if you can argue that without Lindley's, the Germans win the Battle of the North Atlantic. That changes a lot of things, I think. I'm not sure how long the the English can hold out if they if they don't have sea lanes, if they don't have the, open sea lanes. The Battle of the North Atlantic would just be ships going from Canada to Great Britain. Right, and being torpedoed. Right, because constantly. because there are no American ships. Because there's no lend lease. We're we're not right. sending anything over anything over to them. 
Well, theoretically, they can still buy things from the U.S., right? They could be American ships, but they don't have any, they don't have those 60, 40 or 60 year dis- destroyers or whatever they are to, to, now those destroyers were junk, but they were serviceable to some degree. Well, they were, they they were okay help. for convoy duty. They were okay for convoy. They yeah. were useful. Right. By the way, did you know there's a new Tom Hanks movie coming out about a convoy? Yes. Gray Wolf or Greyhound. Yes. Greyhound. Sorry. I can't wait. It's going to be it's, amazing. Uh, it's been postponed. What? The, the release has been postponed because of... No. Well, they can't take that away from me. <laughs> well, a lot, a lot of major releases have been postponed. <sighs> that's, that's literally the only one that I knew about and, and was ex- that, I, that I knew about and was excited about. Yeah, Tom Hanks has delivered us a lot of great World War II material. And he loves playing real characters. Loves it. I still haven't seen the Mr. Rogers movie. So I have a question for you. Okay. Um, most of the what-if scenarios that that are in the books and that scare us... And look, I, it's there's, there is a world in which all the what-ifs go the wrong way. Right? Right. <laughs> if you think about that. Um, we are, The what-ifs always posit, well, if this one thing that went well for the Allies had gone the other way, what happens next is X, Y, and Z. What if all the bad things happened? Um, so then, and if, you know, there, there might be a, a, an alternate reality where that happened. But here's my question for you. The one thing I've never seen, all those, all those what-ifs essentially... The premise is if this good thing had gone poorly, how much, how bad would things have gone? How, 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 how badly could they have gotten? Would we have lost the war, et cetera, et cetera? What I've never seen are what ifs that go the other way. What if, if this had happened, would we have won the war in 1944? I almost never see those. I guess the one is, well, well, there, there's, I think there's one in the one what if book. There's an there's essay uh, yes. where they unleash Patton and Montgomery to just right. punch right into Germany. Right, Which, because there were people in in the in the summer of forty four who thought Berlin was going to fall that that fall. And I th- I think that's very plausible. I think that they had given the gasoline to one of them, preferably Patton, because he he was more audacious than Montgomery was. I, I think he could have punched right through. And I I think the pressure of them showing up on the German frontier months before they did, and not giving the Germans chance a chance to wreak wreak refresh themselves as they did in September of 44 and October. And uh, I think that changes the whole game. Right. So one thing that's interesting to me about the man in the high castle, where it veers off from historical, what if into the, into the science fiction is that they, the German, the Nazis discover that this is just one universe there's a multiverse right. out there and right theirs is the only universe in which the nazis have won world war ii and the japanese and all the others the allies were triumphant mm-hmm. Tri- triumphant triumphant and so it's kind of like uh you know when they do those uh simulations they, they play the 19 the 1985 baseball season a million times and you know four percent of the time the royals don't make the World Series, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, so you have all these multiverses, and only one out, of, only one of them did the Nazis <laughs> win. That's how unlikely their victory was. Right. And I don't know that Philip K. Dick was thinking along those terms, but he, if he was, he was absolutely right. If he wasn't, he got it right anyway. Right. Uh, that's how unlikely their victory was, taking on the three biggest powers in the world by themselves, pretty much. And I think so, I, I should mention too. I, I think I've seen something that posited the French punching into Germany while the Germans were invading Poland. Absolutely, right? that, I mean, that's another thing I've read about that army. too. The French had a massive army, and the Germans had all their armor in Poland. All they and had on the Western Front. No, right, it, they were. I call them crowd control vehicles. <laughs> right, you know those early World War II tanks. They're really good for controlling yep. people but they're not good for fighting other tanks or, f- right. or fortifications. So if you take, you know, if, the, if the, the French had really gotten aggressive and they did like one little incursion and then turned around and went back. So that's the thing I always blame the French for in 1940. Not that they were beaten 
because the the Germans punched through and, and punched to the uh, to the coast. I mean that could have happened to anybody. It just right. didn't just didn't work out well. But before that, six months before that, if they had just been aggressive, they could and they have rolled war. Yeah, they could have rolled they the Nazis war. up. Yep. Right. And did they really not know what was facing them on the border? Is that possible? I mean, they'd been presumably been traveling back and forth. People, they, it's not like the borders were completely closed. I don't think. So they should have had a pretty good idea of what the what the defenses look like. Right. Um, I, my assumption is that they were politically paralyzed for whatever reasons. And I've again something I've read about, but I've forgotten. Um, but um, there was an opportunity there uh, to punch right through the the, the border defenses and in Roland, maybe not Berlin, but certainly put the kibosh on a lot of the plans. And there's a there's a book written about 40 years ago. I think it's called 1943, and it posits that we sh- the Allies should have invaded France in 1943 and put an end to the war then, and they uh-huh. could have. I honestly huh. don't remember. I read it so long ago. I think it was sort of skipping Italy, just not even bothering invading Italy, right? Just going right for France. The soft underbelly. Or not not the soft underbelly, not not the thing. No, they did what I, 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 I'm re- referencing. Oh, Italy, yeah. Churchill's description of Italy as the soft underbelly. <laughs> Which yeah, there's a guy that the, knows about soft underbellies. He learned about it at Gallipoli in 1915. Yes. But yes, <laughs> Churchill was not a great strategic thinker, uh, near as I can tell. He had a lot of wild ideas. Yes. Which which he would voice out loud. And he had enough he had enough power to actually make some of them happen. Right. Uh anything else on what ifs? I feel like uh I, I'm out. Uh, we could you could talk for three solid days about what ifs for World War Two. We could. We could But I think we, we it'd be a great podcast, but it would require an amazing amount of study. One of the things that I picked up on when when I was reading the what if scenarios in, in the book you sent me, is that like Stephen Ambrose wrote one and he's just throwing these assumptions out left and right. This would have happened and then this would have happened. What, wait, stop. <laughs> you need to write a whole book just to explain that one assumption. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. If you really want to do it well and make a case, you've got to do an immense amount of groundwork first. And a lot of times people don't do that. They just sort of throw these things out there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure this would have happened. No, you're not sure. You're just guessing. Well, the one thing we know is that 106 years later, we're still living in Gavrilo Princip's world, the world that he made with his little handgun. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the big what if of all time. What if what if the, the motorcade with the Archduke Ferdinand in it hadn't changed course and right. ridden by, right by him? After yep. he had pretty much given up on the idea of assassinating him, then we're living in a different universe. Maybe again, that's the great man theory. But there is, there is a. I think there is a, a there is a way of thought that that the powers were arrayed against each other in a way that was going to lead to war. Probably, if it hadn't been no that, it would have been something it else. It would have been something else. It might have okay. happened in 1915 or 16 instead. But 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 the Kaiser was determined. For various reasons, to to have more. Okay, I with, withdraw my point from the record. Please strike <laughs> we that. Don't, again, we don't know. That's the thing. You might be right. Maybe the Kaiser dies of a. You know, maybe somebody shoots the Kaiser the next year and everything's fine. Who knows? <laughs> maybe he chokes him a chicken. I'll bone. go back. I'll go back and do it. People always want to go back and assassinate Hitler. How about assassinating the Kaiser in 1914? Does that make more sense? No. No? No, you got to get Hitler out of there. <laughs> but if there's no Kaiser, there's no Hitler. Well, there was a line of ascension that whoever took the Kaiser's place probably would have gone on the same course. Uh, maybe. Wasn't in the Kaiser in the thrall of the, the generals? Uh, no, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, he was certainly militaristic, as were they, the Prussian generals. But uh, I, I think he was leading them as much as, as much or more than 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 they were leading him. He really had, you know, he he was related, as you know, to 
most of the royal families in Europe. And yeah, they all look alike. <laughs> no, they, they do. Were, the the, <laughs> the czar and the king of England and the Kaiser. They were all cousins. Yeah, they were all cousins. Yeah. Identical cousins, you will find. <laughs> you could lose all your right. mind. Uh, I, I will let you get, get the last word if you want, but I'm going to say right now, this concludes episode eight of the eight-episode series, The Pod Against America. Our music is Johnny Dresden's Teutonic-tinged version of Telstar, the Joe Meek penned hit from 1962. This is Rob Nyer. And Jim Baker. Saying goodbye until we meet again on some other podcast. Take care. Maybe this podcast, if something comes up, we'll see. Never say never. See you, buddy. Bye.